Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. I saw a video of Joe Biden giving a speech the other day, and my first thought was, oh right, there's a presidential campaign going on. Remember those innocent days like six months ago when 2019 felt like the wildest year ever? My guest today is Scott Detrow, whose job it is to cover the presidential election amid all this craziness. Scott is the political correspondent for NPR and a co-host of the NPR Politics Podcast. Scott cut his teeth in public radio while an undergrad at Fordham, where he worked for their station WFUV. He's also a grad of Marquette University High School in Milwaukee. We talked about what it's like to go to a Joe Biden campaign event with a couple dozen other people in the room instead of a couple thousand. Plus, we took a look at the various roles Faith is playing in the race for the White House and how Scott's Jesuit education prepared him for this work. And stick around till the end for some very scattered yet passionate thoughts about the upcoming baseball season. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Scott Detrow, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat today. Uh, How are you doing? Uh, You know, good for 2020, I think, is my generic response when people ask. It's good to be here, though. No, yeah. In some ways, like, you get these marketing emails from different people pitching us stuff, and they usually would just be a generic, like, oh, are you interested in our product or service? And it's like... I hope you and your family are holding up well in these challenging times. It's like, oh, I don't know what to do. We need. I, I heard somewhere, I think it was a, another podcast where people said we need like a new word or something or an acronym to just like stand for the holding up pretty well despite the right. situation. I, uh, so, I feel like I check myself when I said no because it's like so like hope things are okay with you and your family. Right. Anyway, to the point of my note, like, right, exactly. which is yeah. sincere, but like everybody says it because it's a very legitimate question. <laughs> no, sure. So I, again, imagine for you as someone who's covering political campaigns, presidential campaign, things look different this time than they might in any other year. So what is your, what is your daily life like trying to do that in 2020? You know, for so long leading up to 2020, um, my family and I would have these conversations about how 2020 was going to be a really hard year, how I would be gone for just long stretches of time and how we would get through that and like having the right mindset and being communicative about it. And then, of course, I, uh, you know, I haven't left the house since early March, with the exception of these um, very strange trips to cover Joe Biden events every other week or so, which I'm sure we could talk about. But, but yeah, trying to cover a presidential election from your spare bedroom is certainly a challenge and trying to cover a presidential election that the presidential election is really like a sidebar issue and there's hardly any actual campaigning is is very very weird yeah there's just news today as we're talking on a friday that the conventions are radically changing in terms of number of people so yeah so even you, you mentioned going to some biden events so what are what are events like not obviously not like huge gyms full of people high schools are you know packed in so what has that been like Yeah, he didn't really leave his house for March, April, and May. And then beginning in June, he started doing one or two events a week, um, either in Wilmington, where he lives, or it's like he's been inching further into Pennsylvania every week. So he does Philadelphia, then he does the Philly suburbs, then he does Lancaster, then he does Scranton. So it's like he's almost making like basketball shuttle runs across Pennsylvania. Uh, And these are for a couple reasons. First of all, that Joe Biden is an older guy. He is in the more uh, vulnerable age set for the coronavirus. And also, I think more importantly, 
The campaign has made a decision that they're going to take this really seriously. They're going to model safe behavior. He's going to wear a mask. He's going to say, like, here is how you go into the world safely with the coronavirus. So these events are very controlled. Uh, it's what's called a pool reporter setting. So there's one radio reporter, one newspaper reporter, one TV reporter, maybe 10 of us total at most. Um, we go, everybody's wearing masks. Everybody, in addition to being checked by Secret Service, has the temperature taken, has to answer questions about their health. And then when you go into the room, it's these big rooms. We're all spread out across it. And what's more, the campaign has started putting down these plastic rings, like almost like hula hoops for each reporter to stand in. So it's really like this post-apocalyptic feel of like you're in this dark, large room all spread across and you can't leave your circle. And then here's this guy who's like the nominee for president of the United States. So I've done this four times now and it gets a little more normal each time, but I have to keep reminding myself this is this is not normal. And I try to just take notes for like, you know, two or three years down the line. And you're like, what? What what's going on? Right. I can imagine for someone like that, a candidate used to speaking to a big room, you know, or like a, or in a more intimate setting. But to be in a big room with like no one out there, that would just be such a weird experience. I'm, I've been reading about like the NBA bubble, you know, this campus in Florida where they all gathered and like find myself just like looking at this and like, oh, OK, that that makes sense. And then realizing like, no, this is insane. Like this, this is like a, like, in a, again, as you're saying, a post apocalyptic short story or something like there's no way this is real. Uh, and you've so, seen him figure out how to do that because it's a very strange public speaking thing. Like, you know, you go and you're addressing 10 people and you're speaking like you're addressing 300 people. So he right. kind of, it took him a while to figure out the right way to do this. But I mean, that's, that's my big question for the convention speech in a few weeks in Milwaukee, I'm going to be there probably the same setting. I think there'll be a little more people spread out, but like, how do you give that big rousing speech where usually you're riding off the wave of 20,000 people in an arena to 22 people? Sure. So just to back up a little bit. So in this coverage you're doing for NPR, the NPR politics podcast, um, what are you covering Jets Biden? Are you covering the whole campaign? What are you looking at right now? So I've got two mostly overlapping jobs. The main one is that um, I'm one of our two reporters who's been covering the Democratic side of the presidential race. We've got a couple of reporters who are covering President Trump as well. So my colleague Asma Khalid and I through most of 2019, we were like dividing and conquering this, you know, two dozen candidate field. Uh, when the race really narrowed to Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, I traveled with Bernie Sanders all the time. She traveled with Joe Biden. And now the two of us are, are covering Biden together. Uh, and then at the same time, we're also, along with a couple other people, all co-hosts of the podcast. So it's figuring out what's the most important thing to talk about each day and putting together a daily 15 minute or so podcast on on politics. So as a, a reporter, again, I so much of that work is building relationships, being in person, grabbing people maybe in the hallway, like for questions, get some background information. How is that part of your work playing out reporting wise in the middle of this, like when you're when you're kind of at home <laughs> a lot of the time? I'd say a lot of texting, uh, a lot yeah. of texting and phone calls. And for radio, you know, usually it's a pretty elaborate process to get somebody in a position to record them for the radio. We used to always care about getting the highest audio quality possible now it's just like, okay, let's talk on a cell phone and I'll stick a recorder through my cell phone and we'll make that work, which kind of make, that's one thing that makes my job a little easier. But um, th there's always a few more hoops. And I feel like, you know, I, a lot of people, I think you're in the same camp of having to be a parent to kids who, who are not in school right now. And a lot of the campaign staffers are the same way. So it's kind of like, oh, one second. Uh, yes, you're a senior advisor to a, you know, a national politician, but my kid just ran into the room yelling. So let me deal with that for a minute. Uh, Everybody's just kind of trying to be understanding of each other. Sure. 
So having covered Bernie Sanders and then again, before this kind of started, right? And then seeing the shift, what, what are some things from that experience you had that you learned about him? Again, his second kind of big run through in a row um, with, you know, obviously some rabid followers, some time as the front runner. What, yeah, what are some takeaways from following that campaign? Yeah, I feel like I'm still trying to process that mid-February to early March window where Bernie Sanders for, you know, about three or four weeks, looked like he was going to be the nominee. It looked very hard to stop him. And, you know, you had to have a crazy series of events happen that then proceeded to happen in that exact order. But I think the thing I really dwell on is just, you know, 20,000, 10,000 people in a room, 7,000, consistently around 10,000 people in these massive rallies and thinking like at the same time, the coronavirus was clearly like creeping across the country in this, in this period. And like, that just makes it very strange now. But I think like just the consistency of Bernie Sanders message, the fact that he had cared about these same social justice issues, these same poverty issues, the same restructuring, the way the federal government works issues for decades and decades. Like if you went back and listened to a speech that Bernie Sanders gave as the mayor of Burlington in the mid eighties, it was pretty similar. And then it was this ironic moment where He's clearly not going to win the nomination. He essentially drops out of the race before he really dropped out of the race. And then what happens? This Republican-controlled Senate and White House adopts big government, is, is, is voting to send $1,000 checks to everyone in America, spending trillions and trillions of dollars on, on unanimous consent votes. And it's like, wow, Bernie Sanders' moment really arrived just as he hopped off the stage. Right. Uh, so he's stuck around a little bit in, at least with the Biden campaign, there have been reports again of these, these task forces that have gathered trying to figure out ways that, you know, maybe the Biden campaign can pick up some stuff from, from Bernie Sanders. The word about Joe Biden, at least that I've seen somewhere is that he's someone open to, I guess, depends on how you view this, right? He's either open to change in growth and hearing all kinds of sides or the more cynical approach, he would just kind of go where the wind blows. Uh, what has been your take kind of watching that as, you know, he's tried to court both folks from that wing of the party, plus also, uh, kind of more moderate people, even some disaffected Republicans. I think there's a couple things to think about there. Uh, the first is that, yes, Joe Biden ran and won the nomination as like the moderate in the room, right? But being the moderate in the room was very relative. Like from the moment the campaign started, Joe Biden was running on a platform that was clear to the left of the, the Obama administration, just because the country changed a lot uh, for ways that we all know. Um but I think it is true that he really has adapted his approach since he's won the nomination. And you could argue maybe that's a cynical attempt to appeal to progressives. But I think it's also a sincere looking at the moment, looking at the crises that the country is facing and saying we need to maybe do a little bit more. So I'd reported on those task forces. Those were really like earnest, sincere conversations between the Sanders camp and the Biden camp. And they came out with a lot of proposals that really do shift Biden to the left. And I think you saw that last week when he um, he announced this big climate change plan that was almost all of the big components of the Green New Deal, which Biden had never really signed off on uh, under Joe Biden's name. So you've seen two kind of recently um, things changing in the race, in the national picture, things that might be surprising, like so the Biden campaign buying TV ads in Texas, wondering mm -hmm. if is Texas in play? Are these places in play? He has to, you know, as you're saying, be in Pennsylvania, these kind of the Rust Belt states or upper Midwest states, uh, while also looking to expand to the South, the Southwest. Um, what are the trends you're paying attention to right now as this unfolds? I think uh, the flip side of Joe Biden kind of moving 
I say flip side a lot in this election <laughs> uh, of moving to the left and a lot of issues is that I think the big appeal that he has right now is a much more broad appeal of, you know, I'm somebody who would focused on governance. I'm somebody who would focused on kind of basic unifying messages. I'm somebody who would take this seriously. And you can argue that President Trump's decisions and actions and statements have really left all of those as openings. And you've seen a lot of more independent leading voters warm to Biden. You've seen a lot of older voters warm to Biden. Usually over, older voters go for Republicans by a pretty big margin, but a lot of them are rightly very scared of the coronavirus and feel like um, also feel like the president hasn't handled it well. So they are at the moment backing Joe Biden in bigger numbers than before. And I think that really shapes the map a little bit. You know, we for three years thought that this was going to ra- be a race that was all about uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the three states that Trump flipped to become president. It's certainly still about those, but you also have like this next wave of swing states like in the Sun Belt, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina. And now I think we are having a conversation about does the Biden campaign spend money in Ohio? Is Texas a place that it makes sense to focus on? I think in the moment, Texas is still kind of like that ad buy was really small and it was more as a symbolic move. But if Texas keeps getting ravaged by coronavirus and the suburbs uh, in around the big cities keep being turned off by the president, maybe this is the moment where a Democrat can possibly win there. You've seen kind of, again, the different roles that Biden has assumed, you know, former vice president, he, you know, someone trying to provide like the message of steady and we can get through this and maybe the message that people don't feel is coming from the White House. He's also someone I have seen referred to, you know, that he would be a kind of like a mourner in chief. He's someone whose whole entire career and his life really kind of in some ways defined by the kind of personal loss, uh, again, having lost his wife and, and child uh, decades ago and just his son again, Bo, more recently, um, that he can in some ways help, maybe help country heal through some trauma. And you hear stories about that, the way he you know, pops up at funerals or, or wakes kind of with, you know, without much attention. Um, yeah. What, what do you have to say about, about that part of his kind of political story and his personality? I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, the core of who he is as a person, who he is as a public figure. I think the biggest challenge that Biden has had in this current world of campaigning is that, well, he can still give speeches. He can't really do those one-on-one interactions because a lot of the time when you cover him during the primaries, his stump speech would not be the most high energy stump speech, right? It wasn't like a Barack Obama campaign event or a Bernie Sanders campaign event. The crowd would kind of be like, oh, okay, that, that was a fine. But then like, Afterwards, shaking hands with people, meeting with people, people would tell him a personal story, maybe a story about loss in their life. And he would he would grab them by the shoulders. They would clearly have like a very intense moment that would last a couple minutes. And people would feel like Joe Biden was able to connect with them and kind of tap into his experience of dealing with deep, unimaginable grief. And I think that's also where the fact that, uh, you know, he's Catholic, he's um, that's a big part of his personality, a big part of his life. He talks about faith a lot in that context of dealing with loss, dealing with grief, kind of finding a way through it. And he talks about that a lot um, just in one on one conversations. And also you, you see it make its way into his speeches. And I expect it'll be a big part of his acceptance speech uh, in Milwaukee in a couple of weeks. So as a Jesuit podcast, we, it is good for us to talk about faith and the role faith has in this election is pretty clear, as you just mentioned, for Joe Biden some. And so maybe if we could talk a little bit about that as you're kind of watching it unfold, uh, both with Joe Biden, then with the president. So we could start there. So you mentioned, again, he's Catholic. That kind of comes up. What what roles do you see faith playing in his life? Obviously, he's had some conflicts with with bishops around his position uh, connected to abortion in particular. Um 
but again, is part of his story, part of his like kind of daily life commitment still. So yeah, what what do you see? What roles do you see Faith playing for him? I think you see it as as kind of something that that seeps into his everyday life in a way that feels more sincere than maybe when you hear other politicians talk about it. Like he, you know, he's he's quoting, he's giving Kierkegaard quotes on the campaign trail almost every day. Uh, it's it's always the same one, and he always brings it up. It's a good quote, but he talks about you know how faith seems best uh, in the darkness. Um, he talks about the fact that when he was in the Situation Room when Osama bin Laden was killed, he was sitting there with a rosary. Uh, he talks about just kind of the feeling of of sitting in the back of mass, being by yourself, but also being in this universal setting because, you know, it's the same from place to place, no matter where you are. Uh, as you mentioned, he holds some pretty strong views that that do not go along with Catholic social teaching uh, or w- with um, kind of the, the, you know, the bishop's view of, of politics. Uh, I feel like the most clear moment of how you make sense of that to me that I always think about is when uh, Pope Francis was speaking to Congress and he said, you know, I am for a culture, a pro-life worldview and you know, ravenous applause. And then the immediate next thing he says, and that's why I'm against the death penalty, which I think right there is just kind of gets to how it's very hard the way that our current politics are divided to have one person from one party on board with all of the things that, that the Catholic Church talks about. I think Trump, on the other hand, the way that he has courted evangelicals has been a big part of the way he won in 2016 and has maintained popularity. And it's kind of like it seems like he's viewed that as like this is a wish list. This is what is most important to you. Uh, that is appointing judges who will who will issue rulings on the things you care about, defend religious freedom, um, you know, rule against abortion rights, a lot of things like that. And also kind of walking through the the wish lists from from the white evangelical uh, more conservative part of the world of what they want to see for executive orders, how they want to see the federal government operate. And for all of the things that are inconsistent about his presidency, that's been pretty consistent. Yeah, it, it seems like for him, it isn't necessarily as much about a personal commitment as, as you're saying, like knowing kind of what this constituency is looking for, trying to deliver those things. But then we did see again, like in this in the middle of these protests uh, around the country uh, in response to the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, again, when he kind of had the uh, Lafayette Square Park there cleared out as he walked from the White House to the St. John's Church, this kind of historic church that has, you know, been a symbol for a lot of different presidents and political leaders and stood there again with the the Bible in this very odd way. But seemed like, again, that was a, a way to kind of reach out and say, like, this is this is, you know, what I what I care about. And you can believe in me, even if, you know, maybe I'm not like your ideal person in some ways. Um, what was yeah, what was your kind of take looking at that yeah. and how Trump uses faith? I mean, I think that particular moment, you could see that's what he was going for. Um, I think I might have pretty a month later, month and a half later, I think it's fair to say it probably backfired in a big way politically for him. I mean, I think that was a moment where he started to really lose a lot of broad support and people thought that the the use of force in particular, not necessarily going to a church, but the use of force to clear the square was was a big mistake and overreach of power. But you're right. That was the instinct of saying, signaling, this is something that's important to me. This is something my campaign, that my presidency is going to fight for. This is something I care about. We will protect Christian churches. We will do everything we can to kind of advance what they care about. It is worth pointing out that the bishop of, of uh, the Episcopalian Diocese in D.C. was not too thrilled with that moment and made that pretty clear right away. Yeah. So you again, you have the the personal faith of candidates, but then also these bigger kind of demographic pictures that we're looking at, even within the, the Catholic world. I know there's always thinking about that and wondering, 
does if just being Catholic lead you somewhere or are just Catholics so spread out and we're kind of just everywhere that like the way the country goes is the way Catholics will go and, and vice versa. It's kind of hard to pull out some meaning from that. But often you see too that like you have to, starting to have to divide out white Catholics versus kind of not white Catholics. Uh, that mm-hmm. things, you know, there might be different priorities with, within that community, uh, with a different different interests. So are, you see that, like, so in the coverage, again, you kind of see often these monolithic groups mentioned, but I think if you kind of drill down a little bit, you see it's not that straightforward a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think more often than not, this is a little overgeneralizing, but the, the split of the so-called Catholic vote is like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how the country voted, huh? Um, <laughs> But uh, I think the way that the Catholic Church chooses to engage politically is always interesting to me. And it was interesting to me to see the um, an increase in the use of political uh, power and political engagement for, on issues like immigration and climate almost as much as the things we traditionally think about, you know, pro-life, abortion, things like that. Uh, and, and that's been an interesting shift in recent years. Sure. So... You're, again, covering these uh, elections campaigns, your entire career in political journalism at a time when, like, the faith in our political institutions is very low, partisanship is high, there's, you know, and these are all, again, cliches but at this point, but, like, not much positive news kind of coming out. <laughs> um, we have a president, again, who's often targeting members of the mainstream media directly, individually, or just kind of generally saying, calling it, you know, fake news, all these things that that we know. And I'm just curious, for, as someone who's in that world, like, how do you keep going? Like, where do you, <laughs> how do you stay grounded? Like, what is it like to be kind of feel like targeted like that or to be in this system that feels kind of broken in some ways? I, I mean, I think a lot of it, I don't think it's a cliche. I think it's true. A lot of it does feel broken. And trust in the media as a whole is almost as low as trust in political institutions and Congress. And I think there's a big conversation within the world of journalism right now about what the right approach is. And do you, do you lean into your opinions and just make them more clear? Do you lean against your opinions? I'm still in the camp that I think there's a really important role for an objective as possible press to say what happened, like the way I think about it is if we can't all agree on what is happening, we can't solve any of these problems. So somebody needs to be the person saying, here are the facts at the moment and working as hard as possible to be trusted. Because if you don't, if you think that a news outlet is not covering the things they think they look bad or overhyping the things they agree with, you don't necessarily take stock in anything they told you, right? So I think it's really important to try and keep that space it feels at times like an increasingly unpopular opinion and yeah, it's tough sometimes. And I think that's why, I mean, it's important no matter what you do, especially in the current environment to find outlets to kind of mentally step away, physically step away, rest, exercise, get, get your mind out of the space. Like the, the way I think about it, social media drives all of this so much. So like I shorthanded, like stepping away from Twitter, taking Twitter off your phone, not currently, not, not consistently living in the world of yelling at each other. Sure. I think like even the idea though, that we have a set, there are facts and that we can <laughs> show them and they are true. Like even that idea is, uh, is under fire, right? The, the depending yeah. on where you get your facts and it's hard to convince people based on facts or there, again, there'd be suspicion based on again, what outlet you cover. Have you felt that in your work too, in response to it, that like, in your, what you're trying to do is to provide factual accounts of things that people are disputing even the very nature of some pretty basic seeming facts. Oh yeah. All the time. And I thought at first that maybe 
a pandemic would be a way to get out of that world, right? Like this is this national international crisis we're all facing. We're all, we're all stuck with each other one way or another. Maybe it felt that way for a few weeks. And then it just seemed like we went in the opposite direction where you have people, you have people disputing, like to me, how can you dispute the number of people? Like these are people who have died, right? That is a very clear cut situation. There's no ambiguity about it. And yet like, what is the death toll from the coronavirus has become along with everything else, this, this political football that people dispute in one way or another. So yeah, it's, it's pretty challenging at times. Um, but I think it's worth continuing. I mean, my journalist friends and I talk about this all the time and feeling just objected and what's the point anymore sometimes, but I think you've got to fight through that because I still believe we're never not going to need to know what is going on in the world. Right. So, so when you and your, your colleagues at the NPR politics podcast get together again for this daily show, you know, 15 minutes or so, as you said, just kind of covering the state against this backdrop, like what are the, the things you're asking? How are you deciding kind of what you focus on that day? Like just bring us behind the scenes a little bit of how that show gets made. One thing that I'm really proud of is how much uh, younger listeners have, have really come to the podcast. We've got a ton of high schoolers, college students, people who are really in the early stages of engagement with politics. And I think, you know, every time we get a note from a teacher that says like, yeah, listening to the podcast is part of our civics course. I think that's a really cool thing and something that I'm proud of. So I think trying to kind of always step back and take that, that big picture view and take the time to talk about why this is important, why this matters, why you should care about this. Like, I think that's a really good goal of the podcast. Sometimes we succeed more than others. Uh, oftentimes, you know, you'll wake up, you'll see what's happening that day, what happened the night before. And the, the conversation is pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious. That's what you're going to talk about. That's been the case for most of the Trump presidency. Uh, and, you know, especially since we made the shift to being a five days a week podcast, uh, last fall, we had this moments of, well, what are we going to talk about? And it's like, well, we've just so happened to be presented with one massive story after another without any fail. We had impeachment. Then we had the early stages of a primary. Then we had a pandemic. Then we had this big reckoning over race. We're back to the presidential race. So sometimes it writes itself. But I think just kind of talking as much as possible as as people who cover this, but who are also friends and and just talking it out is kind of the tone we're always going for. Even when you just said impeachment, I had to like stop for a second. That was recently <laughs> and a thing that happened. Um, so one thing that's happened in the coronavirus is that folks have been commuting less, listening to the radio less. So NPR mm -hmm. reporting that some of their listenership on like traditional radio has gone down like pretty precipitously, but also that rise in listening to, to podcasts has, has gone up. So you're kind of, again, in both of those worlds, right? You're on radio, you're on podcasts. How are you looking at that kind of general audio media landscape? <laughs> the uh, It's never good when the article about your own company uses the, the verb collapse, but that was, that was in our... Uh, that was in our story that we wrote about, you know, our own, our own ratings. It's, it's tough. It, it's strange. On one hand, you know, you see all these coverage and you're doing all this reporting on all of these things throughout the world that have changed. And the kind of the consistent is, wow, the pandemic has really sped up trends that were happening over the next decade or so to happening immediately with like the shift from going to the mall to ordering clothes online and things like that. And yet when it happens to your own company and industry, it takes you back. But yeah, I mean, for a long time, we've known that there's a lot of people 
who are shifting to podcasts uh, as opposed to the radio to get their news. And I think we've done a pretty decent job of, of shifting along with them. One thing that's always eye-opening to me is that you've got people who love the NPR Politics podcast and you've got people who love Morning Edition. And I feel like there's not often a huge overlap between those two groups. You know, there's people who are like, oh, I didn't realize you had a podcast or, oh, I didn't realize you are on the radio every single day as well. So I think the challenge that we have is they're both very important. And how do we keep both of those supported and, and get the news on both of them? I mean, I hope listeners come back as they start returning to work. I also hope we can return to work sometime in the near future. But I think, I think that, that more and more kind of on-demand audio and podcasts are, are kind of what we're going to be focusing on. There is, even though I'm a big podcast listener, still like something about the radio having grown up with a mother who would come home every day from work and I was like in third grade and say, oh, on NPR, I just heard this. Uh, there's something about the, you know, the radio and being kind of united with people everywhere that I still liked and listened to as long as I was uh, driving places. Um, so you got recently got to kind of step into like a kind of a big chair uh, as the host of uh, the weekend edition show Sunday morning, which again is like, I know a big kind of must listen for folks uh, all over the place. Was that your first time doing that? What was that experience like? Uh, it was my second time. I did it once a couple of years ago, but it's, it was great. I loved it. Uh, honestly, in the current environment, the fact that I got to go into NPR proper uh, for a little bit was 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 really nice. Um, hardly anybody's there, but I'm, I did the broadcast out of there, uh, you know, making sure I was within not within 30 feet of anybody at any point in time. But uh, it was it was really nice. And again, that's something that that I grew up listening to. That was really my introduction to NPR. Um, like a lot of people, it was for me, it was driving from sporting event to sporting event with my dad and listening to that specific show. So that was like a really cool moment to, to step back and reflect that not only do I work here, I have a chance to fill in on this thing that was such a big part of kind of shaping my view of news in the world and of NPR. When you're the host of something like that, what what is the role? Are you helping to think of stories to to run? You're obviously doing some interviewing, doing the puzzle. Like there's a lot to get into <laughs> it. So, what is the role of the host in putting that show together? One of the most surprising things is that you know, for the politics podcast, we still have producers and editors who are helping us come up with ideas, coming up with the ideas themselves, doing the editing on the back end to make it sound good, but. With a show, there's so many more people, uh, and there's producers who come up with the story ideas, put the put the stories together, and obviously, like the host has a say. And okay, we'll do this segment, we'll do that segment. Here's some questions I want to ask, but often the person on the microphone is coming to it pretty late in the process. Where a producer said, "Okay, we've put together this person. Here's why it matters. Here's some here's some ideas for questions," and you're talking to them in 20 minutes. So it's just kind of like um, having the headspace to get read up on a new topic very quickly and then sit down and start having a conversation with this person and, and hoping the conversation goes well. So it's a real high wire act. And that's especially true the day of the show, because then breaking news can happen. The first time I did it, um, there was this, it was right in the middle of that streak where there were a lot of really horrible car attacks in like open markets in Europe, people just like driving cars into places. So, you know, midway through the show, we realized one had happened in Germany. And with like 30 seconds notice, I was having a conversation about something I knew nothing about. And, and the news, the facts were just coming out with our, our correspondent in Berlin. So moments like that are certainly get your pulse up. But uh, to me, getting through that on the other side is like the biggest 
excitement rush that that you have in broadcasting to be able to do a live uh, broadcast and have it not totally fall apart. Sure. So between that and again, your, your work and being in radio for a while and a bunch of different places, are there any kind of behind the scenes stories when people ask you about like highlights from your job, things that are a fun story, just like to try it out back in the old days and you could get together at a bar with people uh, <laughs> and tell stories from uh, behind the scenes work. Any uh, favorites that you'll, that you'll never forget? Um, a lot of them just kind of blend together. I think the one that's I've repeated a lot this year is just kind of like the last day of normalcy of the campaign as the, the pandemic kind of swept around us being with the Sanders campaign and traveling with them. And we started the day in Michigan. This was the day of the Michigan primary. And he did a couple events in the Detroit area. And then everybody's getting it. The plan was to fly to Ohio, hold a big rally in Ohio. Joe Biden was also going to be in Ohio. And as the press is kind of walking through the airport to the charter plane and getting our stuff on, we're told we're not going to Ohio. The event's been canceled. We don't know where we're going. Everyone's sitting around for hours and hours. And then it's like, okay, Bernie Sanders is now flying to Vermont. So you thought you were going to be in Cleveland. You were actually meeting coworkers in Cleveland. Just kidding. Now you're flying to Vermont, landing in Vermont, and then realizing, okay, how am I going to be on this live broadcast that we're doing of the of the primary tonight and just kind of figuring out a way to do it in my hotel room, which of course became the next four or five months. And, you know, that was my last day on a plane as well, but just kind of seeing this world that you've been living in for a couple of years. And this is massive operation of thousands of people flying across the country, being in four States a day and like instantaneously was just incredibly strange. and something that I've still thought a lot about. Sure. Um, so I invited you on to the show, uh, I guess kind of burying the lead here, but you are Jesuit <laughs> educated, Jesuit educated yes. two, two times high school and college, uh, Milwaukee, sorry, not Milwaukee, Marquette university high school in Milwaukee and Fordham, uh, in New York. Uh, so maybe you could, if you could talk a little bit about your, your Jesuit education, how that things you did there or, or learn kind of set you up for this career and what you value from that time. Yeah. I think one of the, the best things about, well, there's, there's many positives about it, but anytime you meet somebody who also went to a Jesuit high school specifically, or, and I'm also a Jesuit college, I feel like you have a pretty good sense exactly about them or exactly what their high school experience was like. And like, there's a, like this instant common ground that you can talk about. Like there's a, there's a Jesuit high school about a block from, from NPR and just seeing, seeing the students going in and out. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what your high school experience is like from mine. Um, to me, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is just kind of like the rate relationships with, with classmates that were formed and kept up like every week since the pandemic started, I've been on a zoom call with my high school friends, like 15 at a time. Sometimes it's like really kind of out of control in a cartoon, but just like people who, you know, we had this experience together. We, we kind of had these, these common values that we learned in high school and we've, kept in touch all the time. And it's the types of friendships that even if you don't talk to them for a year and a half, as soon as you talk to them, it's like no time had passed. So I'd say that that's first and foremost. I know I talked to Dr. Fauci about his Jesuit education and he talked about a few different things. One, like learning about how to express yourself clearly and concisely of being very important uh, in Jesuit education, which he's doing uh, now all the time as you are. He also talked about feeling like with a liberal arts background, he came into medical work uh, feeling like as much of a humanitarian as a scientist. So he felt like he had some grounding in that. Uh, again, any of the, those values from either kind of place stay stay with you in terms of learning how to 
talk into a microphone clearly, <laughs> uh, learning like how to try to bring some sense of humanity to the stories that you're covering? Yeah, I, I think a lot. Um, I think, first of all, just academically, it was just drilled into me the importance of, of writing and writing clearly and writing quickly. Um, over and over again, no matter what class, any class that involved writing, I feel like the teachers were always made the point that the ability to express yourself clearly is is the most important academic skill and certainly the most important skill in my life, especially the quickly part of it. Um, and I think the the kind of like the the big picture humanitarian cross cult um, cross pollination of different uh, classes and experiences is important. Like I think. Coming out of high school, going into college, there was never any question that I wanted to major in a couple of different things because I thought they were so interrelated and, you know, English and political science, because I felt like I knew I wanted to live in the world of politics and I knew I wanted to write it about it. So those were important skills to have. I think spiritually, uh, that aspect of it, the idea of empathy is something that was really drilled into me. And I think that's a really important thing to have as a reporter to empathize with the person you're interviewing and writing about as much as possible and not to, not to be overly sympathetic to them, but to kind of make sure you're thinking about everything you're writing through their view. Like, how is this person seeing this? Why is this person making the choices that they've made that is in the news story? And just making sure you're like, am I characterizing this person from how they see the world as fairly as possible in the story I put together. And I think that's the case when you're writing about somebody running for president. And I think it's the case when you're writing about somebody who has had environmental damage in their house and is like trying to sue, uh, you know, a big energy company over it, no matter what the spectrum is. I think that's a really important trait. And that's something I learned. I know that you got some of your audio start at WFUV, the university radio station uh, at Fordham. So yeah, what, what did you do there? What was that experience like? How did that set you up for this work? Yeah, I think um, WFUV's existence was the best thing about Fordham for me and probably the best thing that that I got out of that experience is this professional NPR affiliate. It's got great music as well on campus that uh, that lets students report and lets students report on a radio station that all of New York that that reaches all of New York City in the metropolitan area, which is just like a great opportunity to figure out how to be a professional broadcaster. So I was you know, from freshman year on covering press conferences that like Hillary Clinton was at and, you know, the mayor, Mike Bloomberg, and just watching all of these seasoned New York City reporters go about their job and, and kind of picking up cues from that. Sometimes I kind of like overlearned uh, things from that because like New York reporters are very aggressive, right? You know, they like scream their questions. And then like when I had my first job out of school, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, little bit of a smaller media scene. And I remember the first press conference I went to, they were like, questions anybody? And I like yell my question as quickly as possible. And I'm like, oh, that's not what people do here. <laughs> and, then, and then the, to circle that back in 2016, when I was covering the New York primary, I realized I'd gone soft because there's a press conference and the New York reporters are screaming and I couldn't get a question in. And I was like, man, I have the skill and I lost it. Um, but that was a cool experience. I got a chance like, you know, through a, through a scholarship that Fordham gave out for kind of like some sort of international proposal, like, you know, spend your summer abroad. I put together this pitch and I spent a summer traveling around South Africa, kind of doing reporting on doctors who were working on, um, trying to deal with, uh, with, with the AIDS pandemic there. And that was like a really learning experience that I think. Looking back, being a couple decades older, 
it's something I would have approached differently. Just like I, it's an interesting learning experience where this is like, I was thrown into this world. I had no idea what I was doing. I write the story that at the time I was very proud of. I feel like looking back, it's something that I would have written totally differently, but that's a big part of education, right? Like going and having experiences and trying to figure out how to frame things and write about things and do things. And, and, and kind of, it was a really, uh, and also doing like an hour long report was, was that was the end result of that, which is something that most people don't get a chance to do until very long into their, their journalism career. So like, that was a great experience. And I feel like I came out of that with like 75% of the skills of being a professional uh, broadcast reporter, which was a good head start. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so one last thing before I let you go, your college friend and friend of mine from after college, mutual friend of ours, PJ, I asked him, like, what should I ask <laughs> Scott about? And he said, oh, Scott's a Yankees fan. So you guys could talk about that. I am a Yankees fan. I don't like to admit that in public now that I live uh, outside of that area. It's not um, <laughs> necessarily a helpful thing. But as we're chatting, the baseball's getting ready to start. Other sports are starting. I don't know if you're a sports fan kind of looking at that uh, trying to make stuff happen in the middle of a pandemic. I, again, even as we're talking on this Friday, maybe this will change by the time it comes out. The Yankees, who are supposed to be in D.C. playing the Nationals, now they're wondering, are we going to have to play somewhere else because of D.C. <sighs> coronavirus restrictions? Are we going to Florida? Are we going to Fredericksburg, to the minor league stadium? Season starts in a week, folks, and we, we don't know. Again, obviously, all this stuff could shut down. Yeah. Um, the NBA bubble, you have soccer bubble, you have all kinds of crazy stuff. Like what, if, as a sports fan kind of looking out, like what do you think? Should they be doing this now? Should they just kind of pack it in? <laughs> the life and dignity of the human person as it applies to athletes seems to be put aside for the uh, you know pursuit of profit, which I guess always happens. But uh, if we really cared about athletes' lives, it seems like we probably wouldn't be asking them to play in the middle of a pandemic. But yeah, it's also, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it'd be some, <laughs> some relief for me, that's for sure. So how about you? Um, I would say I'm as all over the place as you just were on that. I mean, like, I love baseball more than most things in life. It's been a huge part of my identity. It's funny you mentioned the Yankees thing not being in New York. I've thought a lot about, like, because I, to be clear, because we talked about me going to high school in, in, in Wisconsin. I mostly grew up in New Jersey and my family uh, moved to Milwaukee when I was in high school, which I feel like you always have to justify as a Yankees fan. Like, no, I grew up in New Jersey. I'm not, you know, so like I have a, my, my son's growing up in Washington and I'm like, is it fair to push him toward the Yankees? Nobody likes a long distance Yankees fan. Um, you know, we, uh, we watch a ton of nationals games here as well. I just, I don't know what to think because, Sean Doolittle, the relief pitcher from the Nationals, had this great quote that, like, I feel like professional sports are the reward that we get for a functioning society. And I feel like that's a good point. And I don't know if we've collectively earned that right now. I think especially you look at the NBA, and I guess MLS is there too, doing this in Florida where cases are just exploding. And you look at all the variables going into uh, – what you have to do to make it so-called safe to have a game. I don't think you can guarantee that it's safe. And I also don't know how much value you get out of a weird 60 game baseball season. That's kind of like you don't have an American league and a national league. You have this weird expanded playoffs, especially like in a sport where purism is so important. So I just don't. And honestly, I've been like protecting myself mentally by just not reading anything because like I, part of me deep down doesn't think they're going to play at all. And I don't want to get excited for a season that might not happen. And I don't know. I tried to get into Korean baseball for a while and that was the only thing going. Uh, I hung in for like three weeks. It was fun to watch. And then it was just kind of like, I don't know. I don't really know. 
<laughs> yeah. Again, even like the shortened season, like no fans there, like the kind of background, like little guilt, little yeah. Catholic guilt creeping in, like they shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see uh, maybe, how that goes. Maybe we'll both feel differently if they're actually playing in your 10 games of the season. You can like watch a Yankees game at night. Like that would be great. Right. Yeah, I mean, if they win the World Series, I'll definitely be excited. Uh, I'll be happy about that. Of course, like we moved to DC area, right? As the Nationals get good, so my like almost five year old is like talking about the Nationals instead of about the Yankees. So I really have to work on that. So in our imaginary play, I usually redirect her as I can, but we'll see. There, I think they're allegedly the first game, right? Yankees Nationals. That's right. Let's do that. And you mentioned Sean Doolittle. We got to mention he's a he's a Jersey guy, and his wife Erin Dolan, who's also awesome and a great Twitter follow. She, at least for a while, was studying theology at grad school at, at Fordham. So, yeah, they're, uh, an, yeah. they're an interesting uh, they're an interesting couple who are both like I, I love the way that they uh, he, he's like an NPR fan and was, like, came on a tour of NPR one day. And I looked up at Sean Dula was walking by and I was like, what? And then, like, of course, <laughs> creeped him out and like, was like hey, I just want to say hi. But like, right. I feel like he is he's like a he and like there's so many examples in the NBA as well. It's, it's cool to see professional athletes kind of use their platform in a bigger way than you've seen. Like that used to be the exception, and I feel like especially yeah. in the NBA, it's become the rule, and I think that's been a really interesting evolution of sports. For sure. Well, Scott Detro, thanks so much again for coming on, taking time in the middle of the craziness to to chat, and uh, best of luck to you in the the next couple of months, and hopefully you can get some time to watch some baseball or make Let's some hope. pizza or do whatever you do. Both of those things. Yeah, <laughs> All right. right, thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>